0: feel like totally hopeless, um, like it's just never going to get better, and you might feel that about your personal life, some of the things I just prayed about, your, your financial situation, your physical situation, your relationship with your parents or your kids or your brother or sister or whatever, uh, you might feel that kind of about our society as a whole, been doing a little reading this week, uh, not related to the sermon, just kind of out of curiosity about the generations, the generations that are alive in America today. There's six of them, I guess. And uh, you may not know this yet, but the youngest generation uh, is uh, called the Boomlets. Uh, it's kind of a take on the baby boomers, which are more famous at this point, probably because you know they're older and they've had some time to become famous, but uh, it's a take on that because in 2006, there was a major boom in, in babies' births, and uh, this is staggering to me, but it, that generation begins in 2001, and I didn't realize this until this morning, actually, it, it hit me. I had a full conversation with a boomlet last night, uh, uh, Bryn's cousin, and it's weird that we can talk to kids that were born in 2001. To me, I'm getting old, I guess. Uh, but there's they're they're the most studied generation ever. Um, and 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 there's a couple things that have already come up. And and that's first of all that they are driven by kind of two things. Uh, and You you could say three uh, pretty easily, but but two things that they're already starting to see that you couldn't have guessed. uh, The easy one to guess would be September 11, 2001, uh, when we were uh, bombed in here in America. But there's two other things that that are not quite as easy to see maybe, and that's uh, An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore, actually, and so uh, that is a big influencer for these kids that were born 2001, 2015, the idea of global warming, the the concept that we need to help our environment, and, and then the other one is school shooting, specifically something that happened before they were born, and that is Columbine, which really started just, you know, 15, 16, 17 years of of shootings in schools, and and you would think because of those two things that the influence would be like these these kids would would say, well, let's be safe and and let's you know save the world. Uh, but actually, they're already finding in these kids who are now turning 15 years old uh, that they're pretty much sick of hearing about the environment. They're only 15. They're sick of hearing about the environment, and, and they've taken a mentality that says. Let's just live now because we're probably all going down anyway. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Basically, so if, if I can give you a rundown of generations, you know, like uh, there was the, the baby boomers, they're like, you know, they think things are, gonna be pretty good, and life has been pretty good for them, and then the next generation, you kind of have people who say, like, we can make it good once again, you know, we can make it good again if we just get back kind of the way things used to be, and then you get the millennials who come in there, and they're like, well, we don't really want to do anything, just kidding, Um, but uh, we're gonna change the world by, that's a joke, Uh, I'm actually a a millennial by some accounts, Uh, we're gonna change the world by making it different than it's ever been before. We're going to do it different because, you know, the old people, they all messed it up. We're going to do it very differently, and we're going to make it all better. And now we have this generation who are looking around feeling, I think, what a lot of us feel. Well, it's over now. I mean, it's never going to get better. Things are only going to get worse, so let's just have a good time because it is, in fact, hopeless. And we feel it on an individual level, and I think we feel it on a society level, I think if most of you are being honest, we have an election coming up and I'm going to preach on what the Bible says about government and our interaction with it in uh, October probably of this year now, Um, uh, and I don't know what I'm going to say yet, I don't know what the Bible says about government, but it'll be fun to learn, Uh, but I think that if most of us were being honest and we kind of look deep inside of ourselves, we would probably, even though we might make different statements, like I'm moving to Canada if whoever is elected, uh, or I'm going to Texas and starting a revolt if the other guy's elected, you know, depending on who you are, I think while some people would say that, almost all of us kind of feel like it doesn't really matter who gets elected, because it's... right <laughs> back. Hopeless anyway. Nothing's going to get better. It's going down. Nothing's going to get better, don't you? Right? I mean, it doesn't. You think that like doesn't really matter who's elected because somewhere inside of me, it's pretty hopeless at this point. Uh, you have family things, and you know, if you're at, of any older age at all, if you're not a kid, you're probably so used to your family things that that you're just like, this is the way my family is. You just probably said, this is the way we are, and and it's hopeless. It's never going to get better. It's never going to be okay. This relationship will never get. Fixed. they'll never figure it out. We'll always have that one uncle, you know I mean, I just looked at my uncle when I said that. I meant no offense uh, but it' was a little awkward for both of us probably. Uh, but you have that uncle, you know and, and, and it's this, it, and it's never gonna get better because our family is just this way. You have it with your health, like, it's all, I'm, I'm hurting, and I'm always going to be hurting, and it's going to be terrible, and nothing's ever going to get better. You have it with your finances, like, I just, I messed up when I was a kid, and now I'm not ever going to have a good financial situation. I'll never have the enough money, and I'll never have the right job, and it's never going to get better. It's always going to be the way it is. I'm hopeless. And then, and then if you're a Christian, and, and we just, just prayed about spiritual life, some of you, it's just like, spiritually, this is who I am. I'll never get rid of this sin, or this addiction, or this problem, I'll never fix this part of my spiritual life, it'll always be a mess, and it always has been a mess, and I wish that it could get better, but it's probably not going to get better, it's just going to be this way forever, and we're asking this question, simple question, why does it matter that God came to be with us, Emmanuel means God with us, why does it matter that God came to earth to live amongst humans. And as Christians, we go, well, he died for our sins. That's important. He died and he rose again so that we might be saved for our sins. But is there anything else? That's kind of what I want to get to. And we'll talk about sin and forgiveness of sin and the importance of that in the book of Isaiah. But, but does it matter, you know, like today, that God actually came to be with us? And I don't mean like in this era? Does it matter like today, for your life, like today, this Sunday, does it matter for your life that God came to be with us? Two weeks ago, I had last week written in my notes, but we got snowed out. Uh, Two weeks ago, we talked about a guy named Ahaz, and we started his story. It's it's a cool story. Because Ahaz doesn't do right, and it shows us, this is what we talked about, it shows us a couple of choices that we have. Ahaz shows us that there's two choices when it comes to the promises of God, when it comes to the things that God has told us. One, you accept what God has said. You trust what God has said. And two, you reject it. It's not trust and not trust, like, yeah, I believe it, or I don't believe it. It's either trust it and say, God, I'm putting my faith in that, I'm going to take my hope in that, I'm going to find my joy in that, I'm going to cling to that, I'm going to believe it, I'm going to make it matter to my life, or... The other choice is to reject it. Not just not believe it, but to say, God, whatever, I'm going to reject you. And we saw that Ahaz chose to reject God. His his kind of choice was summarized in Isaiah 7, 9. I didn't even read it for you a couple of weeks ago, but it was summarized in Isaiah 7, 9 where it says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God promises to Ahaz, he says, hey, you can have any sign you want that I'm going to protect the nation of Israel because a couple of other nations were coming up against them." He said, you can have any sign you want because I'm going to take care of you. And Ahaz says, I don't want a sign. I have my own plan and my own agenda. God, I'm not going to trust you. I'm in fact going to reject you and I'm going to do it my way. That's kind of how we left the story, and if you were to read Isaiah 8, it continues kind of down this this trail, and we talked about how Ahaz made things bad for his people, uh, but in Isaiah 8, we start to see, you know, some fulfillment of prophecy. God said there's going to be a, a child given, and in Isaiah 8, a couple of children are born to Isaiah, and, and some people think that's the, the sign, and it's a, it's original form that God was talking about, and and these children come, and it's a sign, and it's a prophecy, but we get to the very end of chapter 8, and God is prophesying about what will take place, because Ahaz is going to choose to reject him, has already chosen to reject him, and you read through chapter 8, and you get to the beginning of chapter 8, verse 22, and it describes the hopelessness that so many of us feel, because it says this, they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, they will be thrust into outer, utter excuse me, utter darkness. You see, I think that's the way we feel. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, we feel like we are going to eventually just be thrust into outer darkness, metaphorically speaking. Some people think, you know, they're just scared of hell. And hell is described as darkness, honestly, in, in, in the New Testament. And I think a lot of people in our world are scared of hell. And so they, I think a lot of people just live their whole lives trying not to think about how they're scared of hell. And it's like, if I just keep doing enough and I just keep working hard enough and I don't ever stop to think about what happens after this life, then I'll be okay. But they just, they're scared. They're scared somewhere deep in their souls about hell and death and what it all means when it comes to the end. It might be you that that fears those things. For others of us, it's just like the future. And it's like we see that things aren't the way they should be in whatever area of our lives, like I already talked about, and it's not the way it should be. And we we fear what it's going to become because all we can see is, is it getting worse? There is no hope for us in certain areas of our life for it getting any better. For some of us, that's a society level again. It's like in our country, we're like, it's getting worse, and it seems pretty bad. A lot of people feel this, and we're hopeless, and we're like, it's gonna end terribly. It's going to be bad, and, and I don't know what's gonna come. I'm not one of these people who fears that, but, but a lot of people are, are fearful of that, and, and so there's this mentality that Isaiah 8 describes for us, and it's, it's man, it's gonna be just gloom. I mean, joy is going to be replaced by gloom and we're going to have distress and darkness and gloom and and things are going to be bad in whatever area of life it might be. And, And the reality is that for most of us, when we get to that point and we can look back at how we caused it, that's when it's the worst. You see, for the people that God is speaking to in Isaiah, it's their choices that's led to this. I mean, Ahaz says, no, we're going to trust the Assyrians to protect us and not trust God. And the Jewish people follow suit. They get given to idol worship. They empty the, the treasury of the temple, which for God, is just like robbing God. It's like walking into God's house and stealing. Uh, they, they just choose to completely reject God to do it their own way to worship false gods to do the things that they think will kind of superstitiously help them, including things like sacrificing their own children. They say, We're going to do it our way. And God says to them, Here's the deal because you have chosen this, you are going to end up with just utter doom and gloom and and darkness. And, And when we can look back in our lives and go, I know that today I feel this gloom. I, I I have this dark area of my life because of what I did before, because I made that decision, because I did that wrong thing, because I broke that relationship, because I put too much on a credit card, because I I give it gave into that sin or did that thing or made that choice. I have this consequence. That's the worst, isn't it? Isn't that worse than just kind of this is uh, this is how life you know, kind of took me, and it's not my fault, it's my parents' fault, you know, I mean, when we know, and we can look back and go, I did this, and I messed this up, it's worse, I think it's worse because it adds guilt, it's adding guilt to the insult or the injury, but I also think it's worse because we go, well, I'm the one that messed it up, and I don't know that I can fix it, and we feel a helplessness to go along with our hopelessness, and this is exactly the mood that Isaiah is writing as, as inspired by God to the Jewish people. And this is what it says in Isaiah 9, 1 through 3. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. For those who are in distress, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Nebulun and Naphtali were Israelite tribes, and they had territory in a region called Galilee. Uh, just to give you a quick rundown, there was a guy named Jacob in the Old Testament. He had 12 kids. They become kind of the, the, the patriarchs, the original uh, people for the 12 tribes of Israel. And throughout Israel's history, the tribes kind of have different roles, and more specifically, they're given different pieces of land. Uh, That's kind of why it's important for them to know their tribes, and some of them are priests and all those things. These two tribes, specifically, if you were to go back in the Old Testament, had failed to expel all the Canaanites when God told them to. And so what had happened is there had been mixed marriages and they had worshipped false gods and the nation had taken a step back because these two tribes specifically had said, God, we know how you want us to do it, but like Ahaz, we choose to reject it. We don't want to do it that way. Another thing about these tribes is, is their kind of geo- geographical location uh, meant that they had suffered kind of more than the other tribes. They were closer to where the Assyrians were coming, so the Assyrians, as they kind of march upon Israel, the nation of Israel, as they kind of march, they hit these guys first, and, and these two tribes would give in to pagan worship first, and they would they would be hurt the worst because they were kind of the front line on accident because they had chosen this piece of land and not another piece of land, and, and if I'm just being totally honest, if you were to look at the Old Testament, they're, they're kind of like a nobody tribe. I mean, when we talk about tribes, they're not near the top of the list of tribes that we think of, and I mean, we just like think of Judah. Uh, Judah's an important tribe, and these guys are not that important, and so here's their situation. These, tri- these two tribes were underprivileged, and they were sinful, and they were broken down by the Assyrians more than perhaps anywhere else except for Jerusalem in the nation. And that's how we feel. I mean, when you look at your hopelessness, whatever level it's on, wherever it is in you and the situation you're in, don't you sometimes uh, think it's because you were underprivileged I don't know, if you were born into a different house, if you were born with different money, if you were born with different parents, if you had, you know, been smarter when you were born, or you had uh, been better looking, or you had been, you know, whatever. You think, I'm just underprivileged. It's not, It's not you know, my fault. You know it is. But, you know, somewhere in me I can say it's not my fault. It's just, you know... It's, it's God's fault or it's, it's their fault or it's society's fault or it's somebody else's fault because, because it, it's not mine. It's their. They did it to me because I'm underprivileged. If I had been privileged, then everything would have been better. Or you go, well, I'm sinful and, and I've sinned too many times and I've done one too many things wrong and there's no way this can get fixed because I've, I've messed it up before and I thought I could fix it and I messed it up before. Or you're just broken. You're like, life has hurt me and it's hurt me over and over and over again. And, and I'm beaten down and I've tried to be strong and I've tried to rebuild and I've tried to fix my life and I've tried to do it over and over and over again, but I am simply tired and, and I can't, I can't keep going. I can't fix it because I'm broken down. And that's, that's how Galilee was. Specifically these two tribes and their territories and the people that lived in them. And God looks at them and says, hey, here's the deal. You're in darkness. You are in darkness. But something is going to happen that is going to bring great joy. The joy is going to be like people at harvest or a warrior dividing the plunder. I don't understand that first analogy quite as, as well um, because I'm not a farmer and we always have food in our grocery stores in our modern context. But I can imagine, just imagine with me, if you just, let's say all this wasn't developed like it wasn't a couple weeks ago, it seems like, you know, out here, and we weren't in a school, uh, and, and we were just out here, and there was no other society around us, and, and, and we knew that, that what we have to do to have food is we need to plant some seeds into the ground, and we need to water them a lot, and there's probably other steps that I'm, I'm skipping, but I'm not a farmer, and then we sit there, and we hope that corn comes up. And if corn doesn't come up, we die and our kids die and we're really hungry if we don't die and we barely make it through next winter. And then you're sitting there, you're looking out every morning and you're like, what's happening? And all of a sudden you see greenery start to come up. That would be a good feeling. Especially if you weren't a farmer like me, you'd be like, I did it, I succeeded. That would be a joyful moment if you knew that your whole life depended on this harvest. And that's what God is describing for these people. Someday you will be so joyful that it'll be like you see your very life source come out of the ground. Now, the second one I get more, I've never been in the army or a warrior, uh, but I love winning. And whenever I win, I feel extraordinary joy. That's just the truth. And I try not to even be that way now, and I'm really quiet about it. If you ever golf with me, I'm actually keeping score in my head, uh, and I am competing with you and pretending if if I'm in the right mood. I'm pretending that I'm not, but I absolutely know how many you have. And if you go, I shot five, and you really shot six, I probably won't say it, but I'm still counting, and I know that you messed it up, and I'm trying to win. It's always that way. My dad and I golf together. Uh, and And my dad's not he's not driven competitively like me at all. It doesn't come from him. I'm not actually sure where it comes from, but uh, but it's there in me, and it's not from him. and he won't compete and it drives me nuts. And all I want from my dad is to say, "I'm gonna beat you today, and it changes everything because all of a sudden I have a reason. you know I mean winning winning is is a very important part of my life. I'm coaching fifth grade basketball right now. Uh, we're terrible. Don't tell them, but we are we are terrible and and I, it's rec league. Um these kids are out there to have a good time. I think some of those the kids are just out there to be babysat. They would rather be playing video games, but their parents want them out of the house. Uh and and I'm totally trying like just to have a good time to just have fun. And, and uh one of the dads came up to me and said, "Hey, Jackson was like, I really like our coach because I think he even wants to win more than I do. And I'm like, I'm trying not to even show it. I'm like, you know, it's just in me. And and there's nothing, I have no better feeling in the world than when I win. It doesn't matter what it's at. And so this this idea of being a warrior and winning and then sitting around and going, hey, you take this trophy and you take this trophy and you take this trophy because we just whooped their butts. I get that type of joy. I understand it. The first uh First league basketball game I I won in high school, Uh, I had finished the game extremely well. I have the videotape. It was on CCTV in Salem. If you ever want to sit around and watch it with me, I'd be glad to do that. And we had won, and I remember, I remember, I didn't even, I forgot to shake hands. I ran directly to the locker room. I'm celebrating. This is quite the memory. And the only other guy from the other team who would come in there was some huge man with a giant beard, and I was just like, oh, help me. But I forgot I was so excited. I forgot that I was supposed to shake the other team's hands. I wasn't being a jerk. I would have been, but I wasn't being. I just forgot because I was so happy that we had just won. And God says, look, something's going to happen in in you, Zebulun, and and, and Naphtali that, that is going to be so awesome that you're going to celebrate like somebody celebrates victory. And we know what it is. It's Jesus. In Matthew 4, 12 through 17, here's what we read. When Jesus heard that John, his cousin, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum which was by the lake in an area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus doesn't grow up in Galilee, but as soon as his cousin John the Baptist dies, Jesus begins his public ministry. And the first thing he does, it's interesting, is he walks to another region of the country. And he spends the majority of his ministry in Galilee preaching what it just said there, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. You see, what brings this light that takes these people out of hopelessness is the coming of Jesus, and through the coming of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom, which is the rule and reign of God on earth and forevermore. And the prophet Isaiah says, hey, look, you are a nation that's been beat up and been hurt and struggled in a a, a region and and been kicked to the side and you're underprivileged and you have all these problems and you feel absolutely hopeless. But here's what I need you to know. Someday as a land, it's all going to be okay because a light will come and that light is Jesus. Now you say, well, what Jesus preaches here is not that great of news. Repent. Turn around and go the other direction is what it means. And we know kind of from reading the New Testament, it means think about the things you've done wrong the way that God thinks about them and then give your life to Jesus. That's how the light comes into you. That's what's being described here for us. And we say, just for me, what's what's it going to do for those people, for that land? What did the coming of Jesus do? Jesus is the light. Jesus is the one who is going to turn this gloom into something better, into joy and peace and, and something great. Jesus is the one who is going to bring them out of darkness. But what does it mean? In Isaiah 9, 4, and 5, we begin to see that. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. The defeat of Midian is a great story. I would highly recommend you read it in Judges 6 and 7 in your Bibles. Go home, read the story of Midian, because I'm going to give you, I have one paragraph here to give you that story, but it is really an incredible story, and and here's the one paragraph version, the summary version. There's a guy named Gideon. God says, I want you to go into a battle uh, with your people who are about 32,000 strong, and and I want you to go into battle against an army that's about 135,000 strong. Bad idea, right? And then over time, what God does is he reduces that 32,000 army that Gideon is supposed to command down to 300 people. 300 people. And then God just wipes out the other army and says, there's your victory. It's this beautiful passage about trusting God for victory. And Isaiah says, look, here's what's going to happen when Jesus comes. God is going to give you the victory. And we know, here's what we know, that God in, in, in some spiritual ways has given us the victory through Christ Jesus if we become Christians. And, and first of all, the first way is that we have victory over sin. When Jesus died and then rose again, he offered us forgiveness of sin, but not only did he offer us forgiveness of sin, he offered us a way out of sin so that the hopelessness that we feel because we have that addiction or we do that wrong thing and we can't stop doing it, we now can beat that. We can conquer that. And even if we don't conquer it in this life and we're trying, trying, trying and we've given ourselves to Jesus, we know that in the afterlife, ultimately that will go away and we will be victorious because of what Jesus has done for us. The New Testament also tells us that Jesus has given us victory over death that, that no matter when we die on this earth if we have placed our faith in Jesus we will have life forevermore eternal life as it's called in the Bible in the perfection uh, of heaven with God right by our side forevermore and so we no longer have to fear death and so when you're sick and you're burdened and you think well it's all going to end badly and I'm going to die and I fear hell you don't have to because Jesus came and then, and then God tells us this other part, someday the battle will go away. And in the fulfillment of Jesus, when Jesus came, there's still been wars and there's still been struggles, but we are promised that when he comes back, all wars and all tears and all pain and all suffering will go away. And the description that Isaiah gives us is... is, is that it is as every warrior's boot being thrown into a fire, every bloody garment being thrown away because there will no longer be wars, there will no longer be struggles, there will no longer be hurts. And so the first way that we see darkness turn into light and gloom turn into joy is that in the coming of Jesus, we now can have victory over the things that we didn't think we could have victory over. I mean, even something as big, as huge as death is conquered in the coming and the dying and the rising of Jesus. And so what, what does that say about the things in our family and in our finances and in our personal struggles and in our nation? It says that those things, too, we can be victorious in because Jesus has come. But it gets even better. I wouldn't even say that's the good news of this. Philippians four four through seven says rejoice in the Lord always I will say it again rejoice let your gentleness be evident the Lord is near do not be anxious about anything but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus it calls us to rejoice no matter what and we go well so you're going to fix everything someday God that's great but right now I still have bills to pay Right now, I still have struggles. Right now, my knee still hurts. Right now, I'm still sick. Right now, I still have that family member that's terrible and I have to deal with them. Right now, I still have these struggles. How can you call me to rejoice in all circumstances? How can I have peace in this? And Isaiah gives us this description of Jesus that answers that question. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, it says, For to us a child is born. Isaiah says, look, you're going to be brought out of darkness. You're going to be brought out of gloom. And we know that it's in the coming of Jesus. And that someday all of our pain and suffering and struggling will go away. But, but what's the joy now? Where's the peace now? And, and Isaiah answers by saying, let me describe this child who will be called Jesus to you. Let me describe who he is in his very nature and who he ought to be to you. And he says these magnificent Things he declares that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. The word for wonderful here is the same root word as the word for when God does miracles in the Old Testament. But when we hear counselor, we picture something like a couch that we sit on and we lay there and we say, "You know, counselor, Bill." Uh, here's the problem. I have all these issues. You know, we picture him saying, well, it's your parents' fault, and, and let me just express my feelings to you, and you could tell me whether those feelings are good or bad. But counseling, thankfully, I had a wonderful counseling professor. It, it, at its very core and very nature, and I think what God is giving, getting to it, is a helper. I, I have this book. It was my First counseling class book. It's a wonderful book. I've lent it to somebody in our church who hasn't returned my other copy of it. Uh, but I will lend you this one too. It's called The Skilled Helper. And, and, and at the very core of all counseling, is the idea that we are all called to be helpers. And the question, and this is why it's called the skill helper, is whether or not we are going to be good helpers to people or not. And so when you help people, there's just a couple of nuggets here, uh, you should sit in an open posture and show them that you're actually listening to them. And you shouldn't jump to helping them. You should actually ask them questions to get all of the story. That's a big part of this book. Get all of the story before you try to help them. And, and when I think about counseling, I don't think about laying on a couch because I've never done that. It's not something I'm against at all, but I've never done that. When I think about a counselor, a wonderful counselor, a perfect counselor, I think about a skilled helper. And I think that God is our perfectly skilled helper, that God is the helper who can show us exactly the way out of our problems and out of our struggles and out of the hopelessness that we feel. You see, we look and we go, I, I I don't see any, I don't see any way out of this. I don't see any way this gets better. I don't see any way this is going to get fixed. And when Jesus came, someone came that we can now have a relationship with that is the wonderful, miraculous counselor that can show us exactly how we can get out of it, that can Show us exactly what we need to do to take the steps to get out of our gloom, out of our pain, out of our suffering, out of the situations that we have even put ourselves in, the struggles that we have. You see, Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is important because he died for our sins so that we could rise again. But it's also important because when Jesus came, he offered us a relationship with himself by being on this earth. When God came to this earth, he offered us a relationship with his that allows for us to have the help and the guidance and the path out of the struggles that we think we can never get out of. That's a pretty big deal. Uh, the next thing, that it says about Jesus that he is mighty God. He's God with us. We already knew that because we're doing this sermon series. And, uh, and you might think of God as, as just kind of this picture of space that we're going to throw up there. Like God is this being who is out There. He's just a being that created us. You might think that. I think like 90% of Americans think that. Don't believe the atheists that say like we're all stupid if we believe there's a creator because it's most of us. Maybe most of us are stupid, but I don't think so. Uh, but we just, a lot of people just picture this creator, God, that just created, wound it up, and said good luck down there. I'm glad I did it, but I'm going to be up here doing my thing. But when I, when I think about God, I think about this old family Bible that I found the other day. And I think about the things that it declares about God that he is powerful that he is loving, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger, that and this is what it describes, that, that he even created us because he desired to be in a relationship with us, and he desired that relationship so much that as I've said like three times now, but it's important to say it a million times, he desired that relationship with us so much that he was willing to come down to earth and live and die on our behalves. I mean, when I when I think about God, I don't think about somebody that's just out there beyond the Milky Way, hanging out, not caring about us anymore because he did his part in creation. I think about a being that is big and powerful and huge and beyond my understanding, but cares intimately about me and my situations in life. And here's why that's good news. Because when Jesus came, God came right into our midst and God is big enough to take care of your problems. You see, you say, my problem, my struggle, my pain, my suffering is too big for me to handle? And I would say, yeah, probably. But God came to be with us. And and if you choose to have a relationship with him, this is why we pray, if you choose to have a relationship with God, he is not small. And he is big enough to take care of your problems, to help you with your problems. We think that we fight all these battles alone, and that's one of the reasons we're hopeless. But, but God, the God that we read about in, in this book, the Bible, is big enough to take care of your problems. It also declares that, that God is our everlasting Father, and I think I talk about my dad a lot, um when I preach, because that's a metaphor that the Bible has given us, but I know some of you don't have a very good relationship with your dad, but I had a great relationship with my dad, and uh, this is my t-ball mitt. I still have my t-ball mitt. There's a great picture out there of me as a five-year-old wearing this mitt right here, uh, and, and when I think about my dad, I think about, I think about baseball, and I think about fun and I think about how much he cares about me he started coaching baseball because I mean he didn't have that much time he was trying to get a degree and and teach and he was pretty new teacher back then Uh, but what I think about is him saying well that coach sucks and so you need better than that and so I'll I'll do it Um, even though I don't have time to do it that's what I think about Uh, I've now seen this thing that I know I know really well deep in my heart but we have, we have an innate trust in our dads, and uh, you may have a terrible dad, and you don't trust your dad as far as you could throw him right now, and that might be, you know, right not to trust your dad as far as you can throw him, uh, but I've noticed this thing about Hazel that when I'm holding her, she'll just throw herself backwards. She doesn't know that she could break her neck, but there's like this total trust, and even if it was for two days before your dad dropped you for the first time, at some point in life, you had a, a deep, deep trust for your dad. And when I think about an everlasting father, I think about somebody that I can trust completely and who lovingly cares about me. I think about someone who never wants to see me hurt, who never wants to see me struggle, who never wants to see me suffer. And when Jesus came to earth, he wasn't just some guy that lived 2,000 years ago. He was your everlasting father. Not in a Trinitarian sense, if you keep up on theology. Not in his role within the Godhead, but, but in his attitude towards you. He was someone who deeply and intimately cares. And he showed it by coming to this earth. And so when you are stuck in your hopelessness and your struggle, you can look and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus came. <laughs> because he looked down and he said, well, that, that isn't going right, and that coach isn't good enough, whoever that coach is, and so I'll, I'll step down there, and, and I I will be there for you, because I want what is best for you. And then the last description is, is of Prince of Peace, and uh, part of that is that someday, you know, all wars will go away, as we've already talked about. But some of us, when we think about a prince of peace, we just kind of think of peace signs, you know, peace, man, everything's groovy, it's all right, nothing's ever going to bother me. We know that's unrealistic. We'll never have like, uh, uh, while we are living on this earth before Jesus returns, there's never going to be an end to war and we're never just going to feel like all good inside of us. You know, it's never going to happen. We're not going to feel that way. But peace in Hebrew is a word that means much more than just some good feelings. It means being set right. It means being whole. It means being full. It means to be fixed. And, and when I think of peace, I don't think of, uh, I don't think of a peace sign or the 60s and 70s or whatever. I, I think of peace my great-grandma, um, this was my great-grandma's, at least my memories, uh, of this piano are connected to her, and uh, I loved my great-grandma, we lived together for many years of my life, and there's one kind of thing, and Bryn knows this, I like getting rid of stuff as more as I like getting stuff, uh, but if it's connected to my Gigi, then there's no chance I'm getting rid of it ever, uh, I'll die with it, um, and, uh, my great-grandma uh, meant a lot to me just because we were close, but my great-grandma meant a lot to my life now because she was somebody who taught me what peace is about. And she taught it with her words She's the one that taught me my, my favorite verse that I've said to you. When I feel my foot slipping, your faithfulness, O oh Lord, supports me. when I am filled with cares, your reassurance soothes my soul forever. And it's always been a verse that I, whenever life seems unpeaceful, I just go, it doesn't matter because God's never going to let me hit the ground. But even more than that, she demonstrated what peace was about to me. Whether she was going through cancer, whether she was going through struggle, whether things weren't great in relationships, uh, she always had a fullness to her. Uh, Near the end of her life, I lived with her uh, the year before she died again um, at my grandma's house. And my great-grandma was having, and this doesn't sound realistic, but she was having about four heart attacks a week. Uh, And so our, our time waking up would be our family getting up, she would be having a heart attack, she would ring a bell, That's funny I know it's like sick dark you know Quentin Tarantino funny but she would ring a bell when she was having a heart attack and we would get up and my grandma would give her the medicine and I'd pray by her bedside and she never seemed like it was that big a deal. It was just the heart attack, and I'm ready to die. She was kind of ready to die. I wish I wouldn't have another heart attack, but she'd just have a heart attack. She would take her her blood thinners. We would kind of go back to sleep, and everybody would be okay. And as you watch it, when you watch Real Peace, you go, nothing's that hopeless, because no matter what we face, it's okay. No matter what we face, things are okay, because... Because Jesus came, because God came. He's the Prince of Peace, not just because all wars will go away, not because he's created peace between us and God if we've given our lives to Jesus, but he's the Prince of Peace because no matter how hopeless life seems, we have peace knowing that we now have a relationship with God and that everything will be set right one day and that we can die. You see... Jesus comes to earth, he is Emmanuel, God with us. And it matters because he will die and rise again. He did die and rise again. And it matters because we are going to go to heaven someday if we placed our faith in him. But it also matters because every single day when I look at my life... And I go, this isn't what it's supposed to be, and this isn't how it's supposed to be, and I don't see an end to this, and I don't know how this is going to get fixed, and I can try as hard as I want, and it's never going to get better. Every day when I face those types of things, I can still have hope in the midst of my hopelessness because Jesus came here, and he was and is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. You say, well, I'm hopeless, and I say, well, Jesus. You say, well, I'm hopeless, I say, Emmanuel. You say, well, I'm hopeless, I say, God came here to be with you forevermore. You see, there is no such thing as hopelessness for a Christian because we always have hope because God 2,000 years ago came to earth. And just like he spoke to the the tribes in Galilee and said, hey, you don't have to be hopeless now because somebody's coming. He speaks to us and he says, you don't have to be hopeless because somebody already came. It was me in human form. So what I want from you is I want you to recognize when we think about God with us, we don't just think about the end of our lives, we think about every day. And we can have hope today because God chose to come with us. And I love this last part, and I'm gonna finish with this last part because it says something so magnificent. It says the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. You see, God looked down and he said, yeah, you're hopeless. You're hopeless. You should be freaked out. You should be scared. You should be defeated. You should be broken. You should recognize how, how you are underprivileged and how they messed it up for you and it'll never get better. Yep, that's the situation. But, but I have zeal. This is God. He said, I have grace and passion and mercy and love and kindness and goodness for you. And so I will come down there and I will live on that wretched world that feels so hopeless so often and I will live a life there that is sinless and perfect and I will suffer and die and be mocked and beaten and I will struggle and be persecuted and hurt so that you, you can have hope. You see, we aren't fixed because we have a great plan. We are fixed because of God's zeal for you and I. And we ought not reject it. We ought not sit around and go, oh, well, it's hopeless, nothing will get better. Because the God of the universe, the one who created and sustains all that we know, had a passionate love and passionate grace and passionate mercy so that you may no longer be hopeless but be hopeful forevermore. And so what we ought to do is be hopeful because we know of the zeal and the love and the grace and the mercy of the God of the universe who stepped down into this earth, proving that to us and said, no, 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 you were hopeless. You were in darkness. Life was gloomy, but it's not anymore. Will you pray with me, Lord? I thank you that you are Emmanuel. You are not just a God who created and walked away. You are not just a God who, who, who gets mad at us all the time like some people think of you. You're not a God who wound up the earth and got out of the way and said, figure it out, do exactly what I tell you or else I'll kill you. But you are God with us and you have been with us since the moments that we were conceived, God. You have been with us and cared about us and had passion for us and grace for us before we were knitted in our mother's wombs, Lord. And I pray, God, I know, I know that in front of me today there are people who walked in here hopeless. And I know, Lord, that even more there are people who will listen online that are hopeless. And I want you to change their darkness to light and their gloom To joy, Lord, because you have come. And you have come, God, as the mighty God and the Prince of Peace and the wonderful Counselor and the Everlasting Father. Lord, if we reject any of these aspects of your nature then we will be hopeless. If we forget, God, that you are powerful enough to take care of our problems, we will remain hopeless. If we forget that you are our fathers and that you care about us, then we will remain hopeless thinking, well, God will never care. If we forget, God, that you are the perfect, wonderful helper, that then we will go another direction and say like Ahaz, I'll help myself. And if we forget that you are the prince of peace who can provide us peace no matter what, then we will always be hopeless. But I pray that not be true, God, for any of us but we would be always hopeful and we would believe all of these things about you and your character and your nature so that no matter what we face, no matter who is voted in, no matter how bad life, life gets, God, we can have your perfect hope. Thank you for your passionate grace. Thank you for your love and your joy for us. We don't deserve it, but we are thankful for it. And I, I ask these things in your beautiful name, Jesus, your beautiful name, Emmanuel. Amen.